Each year, more than 12 million people will hear the same three devastating words. You have cancer. I'm Lee Silverstein, a survivor of pediatric kidney cancer and stage four colon cancer. My amazing wife, Linda, has taught me that we have cancer because every one of us is affected by it in some way. Survivors, family, friends, and medical and support team members. And we all have a story worth telling. Welcome to We Have Cancer. Welcome to episode 169 of We Have Cancer. Thank you so much for joining me. Just a reminder and a thank you for those of you that contributed and supported Mason, our child of the month. That's part of our partnership with Campaign One at a Time, a wonderful nonprofit organization helping children dealing with cancer and other life-threatening illnesses. Because of support like people like yourself, Mason's dream of taking his family to Hawaii for a fishing trip will indeed come true. And I really want to thank those of you who shared Mason's story and contributed. And we are still raising contributions. You can learn more about Mason and his story by visiting wehavecancershow.com forward slash Mason. And Brody Nicholas, CEO and founder of Campaign One at a Time, will make an appearance in each of the We Have Cancer podcast episodes to share the story of the child of the month. My guest this week is Dr. Paul Anderson. Dr. Anderson is a recognized educator and clinician in integrative and naturopathic medicine with a focus on complex infectious, chronic, and oncologic illness. He founded Advanced Medical Therapies in Seattle, Washington, a clinic focusing on the care of patients with cancer and chronic diseases. And his new book is out. It is titled Cancer the journey from diagnosis to empowerment. You can learn more about Dr. Anderson by visiting his website at consultdranderson.com. And you can follow him on Instagram at Dr. A online. And he also hosts a podcast and you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. And the name of his podcast is medicine and health with Dr. Paul. Join me now for my conversation with Dr. Paul Anderson. Dr. Anderson, welcome to We Have Cancer. Thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate uh, you being on. And congratulations on the launch of your latest book. The title is Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment Outside the Box. So where I want to start is what does an empowered patient or caregiver, for that matter, what does that look like to you? You know, if you really break it down to the, you know, in, in a sense, that's the punchline of the book. The reason the book came about was uh, all of the decades of working face-to-face with cancer patients and mentoring other doctors doing that. One of the things that I saw that was the most um, critical long-term, there's just real basic things, but one of the most basic is how you as a patient with cancer or even you as, say, loved one, spouse, support, caregiver, how you deal with the utter shock of the diagnosis and getting from, you know, the diagnosis leaving you very 
thrown off in whatever way your kind of constitution does that. Some people it's, you know, anger, some people it's confusion, some people it's whatever. But really the other end of the spectrum is all of that is totally valid because nobody wants unpleasant news, unpleasant diagnoses. But an empowered patient is not ignoring the fact that they have cancer and they're not, you know, ignoring the fact that there's a lot of work to do on the inside over this. They're just taking control and being on top of the situation as opposed to just being a wash in the situation of having cancer, getting treatment, and the million things that that adds to your life. And when you talk about the empowered patient, and I always make a point not to exclude our caregivers. I don't, we yeah. wouldn't be where we are without our caregivers. What type of things does that encompass? You know, we hear the term and it's become more and more popular. I think that's a good thing. And I think you would agree the term integrative medicine. What are some of the key components of that? Yeah, I think that, and you know, you're right to include the the, the circle, the, the patient, the caregivers, loved ones, and all of that, because it, we feed off of each other for better or worse. But I, I think regardless of which side of the coin you're on, when you're empowered, you are within your own mental, emotional constitution. We all have one, meaning some people tend to be maybe a little more anxious or a little more depressed or a little more positive or a little more skeptical. But within that and within whoever you are there, the first thing is, is that you have a healthy relationship with the fact that there is this diagnosis in your life, whether it's yours or your you know, your loved one's diagnosis, and you can ex coexist with that diagnosis while dealing with all of the other things that go on around the diagnosis, plus your life that you have to live on the other side. And and so empowerment really is is about you being in charge of the situation because it's your life, it's your diagnosis, it's, you know, all of that. And the opposite, sometimes what I've seen in patients is easy to describe the opposite, and that is people where they just feel like this is happening to me, you know, I'm a victim of this circumstance, which certainly is, a, we all have been there, that's a certainly valid thing to feel, but you can't really get in a healing space and you can't create a healing space for your loved one with cancer without getting past that. And, and instead of being a victim, being in charge of who you are and what's going on with you. So, it's, you know, again, it's not about ignoring it or pretending it's not there or whatever. It's just about saying, uh, you know, I've got my shot at this and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be in control of the way I feel about it and the way I process and, and, and deal with it. Why do you find that some people struggle to achieve, maybe achieve isn't the right word, but it's the one I can come up with right now, to to get to that place of empowerment, I guess is the best way to say it. In working on the book, what I, what I really went back to were just patient stories and I could see faces and situations and just kind of deconstruct how different people worked through this, you know, and, and, and either maybe got help or didn't or whatever. And I think if you take the, you know, because there's always a spectrum of things, but if, if you take the people who get stuck and, and just decide they're not going to deal with this and they become the unempowered, I think what what comes out, and there's, there's pieces in the book where I try and identify these more so people who want to move beyond it can see them, but I think what comes out is some 
group of things are impediments that they feel are just either not worth getting beyond or are too, they're just too monumentous to go beyond. And so those could be things just, you know, like anger, you know, over, I, I, you know, I don't deserve this. I didn't want this. This is not, you know, why am I, why is this happening to me? Or, you know, denial and confusion. I've seen that with people and they just don't, they, you know, they kind of circle around it and they get a little bit better and then they go backwards. And I think that the thing, you know, that really try and bring out in the book to honor that process is you can, you have as many tries as you want to move forward. You know, you don't, it's not, you don't have to get there in any time period. It's your time period. But the other thing that's very, as you know, anyone listening who either has cancer or is helping someone uh, as a loved one caregiver who has it, it is literally, as we all know, it's like you have a whole new job. So you have your whole life that you had before, and now you have this entire full-time job of dealing with doctor's appointments and treatments and you know, your friends telling you 1,100 things you ought to be doing and, you know, every other thing. That pressure is one of the most disempowering things until you find a way to be in charge of it because you you literally are, you have a whole new schedule you're adding into your life. You have all these stressors and you don't feel great sometimes, many times. So I think that the disempowering parts, part of it's within us, you know, that we all have different things that trip us up. Some people are really great with, um, you know, they, they get the shock of the diagnosis and they move past the anger and all of that. And they get into another step pretty easy. Other people get stuck, you know, earlier on, doesn't matter where we get stuck. That's, you know, from us, then you add this layer of all this stuff we're doing to deal with the diagnosis and medically deal with it. Plus the emotions of our family and friends, those things, it's like, I don't want to put any more time into it. So it's, it's, it's literally, that combination of the process of having cancer, dealing with it, and then wherever we're kind of, you know, we all have things we didn't maybe always work on mentally and emotionally in our life. And those are the ones that'll get us, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about uh, two patients in particular, and I want you to tell us more about Bob and Gia. Mm -hmm. Tell us about, about their stories and what you learned. Yeah. So, Honestly speaking, long before I ever thought of writing this particular book, th- those are real people. They're not their names, obviously, and their situations are altered, so no one will know who they are, but they're real people. And when I was uh, proposing the idea of the book to the what I call the big editors at the at the publishing company, you know, they, they want to know how you're going to break it down and how you're going to help some of the information. And I said, well, you know, large part of the book is just taking people through steps and saying, you know, this, a, this is okay. And B, if you're stuck here, here's how, how you move on. But I said, really the reason the book came up is real live people that I've seen either do a great job or not so great job with this. And I said, I wanted to tell their story kind of as a, a thread through the book. And the chief editors said, you really need to do that. Otherwise, it's sort of a dry kind of manual. And you need to add some humanity to it. And there's no more human thing than real people. So I picked the 
two people at the furthest ends of the spectrum on either side as I could find. And, and honestly, you know, to so in the book, you'll learn those who haven't read it yet, that Bob is the one who really, he gets stuck. Uh, he doesn't do very well. And, you know, a lot of negative kind of comes out with it. Although, as I really point out, that's everyone's choice. This is not about you know, right or wrong, or you have to do this. This is, he chose to be that way. And that's great. You know, that was his thing. But the thing that, um, never left me after dealing with Bob and other people like him who kind of got stuck and didn't, you know, move forward was, um, what I saw over and over and over is they certainly, you get to choose what way and deal with things, but their outcomes were not as good. And they, turn down therapies that may have indeed be helpful. And it's almost like they developed a, you know, a, a very negative sort of outlook and they just, you know, it's almost like they wanted their life to be over as quick as they could have it. And as, you know, as someone who works with people to try and help them have the best journey as they can through cancer, that's a haunting thing to deal with to, you know, and it's, you have to, you know, disconnect from it because it's not your body it's theirs and they get to do whatever they want but it's it really underscored when you take that experience and how not good those you know whatever therapies you do whatever it is if you're in that stuck angry space it's not going to end as well it's not going to you know process through your body as well and then you take people in in my practice because of you know we we worked with people to try and optimize their health during their cancer care and sometimes deal with side effects and things we had more of the gia type folks who were very motivated to you know be look yes i know i have cancer i may have stage 4 cancer but I'm not going to give up and I want the best, you know, process I can do. And so the Gia uh, character, she was just sort of like the, you know, the gold star student because she went through all the same stuff. She was angry. She didn't want the diagnosis. She, you know, all of that. And we had a lot of really, you know, big heart to heart talks about it, but she decided, you know, Hey, I don't know how this is going to go, how long I have or whatever, but I'm going to be the person in charge of the way that, you know, I deal with things, the way that I feel about them. And it wasn't easy. You know, it's none of this is easy, but she just kept plodding towards and she became an extremely empowered patient, began to help other patients. And I truly believe just looking at, you know, thousands of cases over time, the more empowered, the more GIA end of the spectrum, the better quality of life you know, hundred percent and probably quantity of life too. And definitely the way that, you know, there's a lot of things about cancer that are no fun at all treatment wise and all that other stuff. And if you're in a place where you're empowered, it doesn't make it more fun, but it makes you still in charge of how you're going to deal with the outcomes. And so the Bob and Gio were really like the kind of the yin and the yang, the, the two ends of the spectrum of that. And they're, they're very much not made up. Everything about them is real life, you know, the, how it happened and the feelings that came out and all the discussion. So what I've heard from people who've read it with and, with and without cancer is that it, it made them really tie into the concept of, what does that mean to become empowered? Hi, everybody. My name is Brody Nicholas, and I lead nonprofit campaign one at a time. First off, I just want to give a huge thank you to Lee for this awesome opportunity. I absolutely love what he's doing here on the We Have Cancer show, and I'm honored to be able to share some of our campaign kid stories with all of you. 
So this month, we are sponsoring a 14-year-old cancer patient from Ripon, California, named Mason. Mason was diagnosed with pendamama in January of 2017, and after multiple battles and surgeries, is now facing two new tumors in his lower spine. Mason loves to hunt and fish, but has had to cancel a few trips when his cancers come back. He's gone through so much over the last few years, and it's been tough on the whole family. We're on a mission to raise $10,000 this month to send Mason and his family on a fishing trip of a lifetime and provide them all with some extra joy and support. You can learn more about Mason's campaign by visiting wehavecantershow.com forward slash Mason. Thank you all for listening and let's keep spreading good together so that no child battling severe illness ever feels alone. Be sure to stick around to the end of this episode to learn how you can get your rear in gear. You know, I nine and a half years stage four myself, and I sometimes wonder why. You know, why have I made it this far and still, all things considered, relatively good health? And I've wondered, you know, hearing and reading what you've talked about, if it identifying more as a Gia than a Bob, it could partially be the reason. Yeah, I honestly, you know, and partially. And- yeah, I think I think it's, and that's another. You know, it's easy to oversimplify everything in life, but <laughs> and that's what you know. Human nature is we want the simplest explanation. And I, you know, I I said in the book, you know, I've seen people, not so much on the Bob negative end. They they tend to not do very well, but I've seen people very empowered and very on top of it, and they still, you know, the outcomes maybe aren't so great, and you know, they're not like what they were looking for, but they still they were still kind of on top of the situation and I don't like to say in control, but they were, you know, they were an empowered master of their fate as opposed to a victim. So you certainly have people who are doing everything right and, you know, things still don't work out well. But I think the opposite is the other way I look at it is if you have a choice to move to being empowered and kind of on top of things, if, if everything lines up that you're going to be a longer term survivor with better quality of life, you're going to do it with that sort of attitude as opposed to, you know, the Bob kind of negative attitude. I just, I, you know, I tried to search my mind for people who were on the Bob negative angry end of the spectrum who defied the odds and lived a long time. And it was pretty rare. It really was. Interesting. Mm. What about those who say, yeah, I'm Bob but I want to be Gia and I don't know how to get there. What's, what's your, yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, I think the first thing is the fact that somebody could get to that point and be that honest. That's the first step because then that opens the door to making changes. And if, you know, if you read through the Bob story, Bob, Bob had a realization of this. He just didn't want to go anywhere with it. He, he didn't believe it was going to help. He didn't believe it was possible. So, you know, that was the end of that story. But I've had a lot of people who they get past the shock and they're like, I, I need help because I am stuck here. I am I'm pissed. I don't like this idea. You know, I'm confused. I don't know what to do next. Really, the reason I wrote the book kind of in the order I wrote it in is for that person so that you can literally start with all I can do today is acknowledge that I need to take some steps forward to something better. I have no idea what those steps are. And the, the way I built the the first portions, of the most of the book, literally are just steps to go through. And and what I say in the book is, you might like chapter one and two may be gold for you, and they really get into the stuff you need to do to 
springboard forward. And chapter three may be something you already got a handle on. You you only need what you need. But it really is about stepping forward. Now, some people, and as you know um, very well, uh, being as much in the medical system as you have, some people have more access to outside help than other people. So maybe because their insurance plan or what the unfortunate part of our, you know, U.S. insurance system is just some people get a better group of things than other people get. And so some people we had where they either had means or they had really great insurance, they could literally engage a, um, a psychologist, sometimes a psychiatrist, sometimes a, you know, a social worker who only worked with cancer patients and only helped them with these things. And they sort of had like a coach, you know, to move from A to Z. Most people didn't have access to that or just didn't have time because they were busy going to radiation or going to chemo appointments or whatever, you know, and they, they, they were too tired at the, you know, at the end to do any of that. So I think that the, you know, getting through the steps, assessing where you are, realizing, you know, a portion of the book, I keep coming back to the idea, everything's okay. Like, it's okay. You're upset. It's okay that, you know, this feels bad. It's okay that this is hard. That's, that's human. It's, we're not trying to say that's not a, you know, no one wants this. The part that you have to take control of is if you can move from getting not angry and confused over to the next step, great. And then there's more things to do going forward, but it's all doable. And and really, I kind of wrote the book, the non-Bob and Gia parts are, are very pragmatic and this is the way to get from A to B. And maybe you can jump from B forward and then you've got to go from, you know, G to H or something. I tried to just write it that way so people with no resources could still move their way through it. And, and, uh, and that's, I think that that's the most important thing. You know, the first thing is, and there's a little bit of, you know, I, I quote some research and stuff in the book and there's more and more research around being an empowered patient and all that. But, you know, just, based on, you know, unless I'm totally making my career up based on, you know, what I've seen with people, if you want to do this process, it's actually very good for you. It's very good for your quality of life, probably your quantity of life. And it's worth doing, you know. And so the book is is just made in those baby steps to take you forward. And it's an easy read, I, I think. A couple of years ago, just out of curiosity, I did a search on Memorial Sloan Kettering you know, one of the preeminent, you know, cancer centers in the world, did a search on their site and I searched the word meditation and I found over 200 articles, references to meditation from Memorial Sloan Kettering. Are you finding that the integrative piece of integrative medicine is becoming more widely accepted? I would say definitely. Um, it's it's in layers, and it, you know, because integrative things are a lot. <laughs> but I w- I would honestly say going back, well, let's just we don't have to go back too far. Let's say between twenty and twenty five years ago, the normal conversation with my colleagues in standard oncology would be, you know don't bother, don't waste your time doing that. All of this is bunk. It doesn't do anything with very few exceptions. There'd be individual, you know, doctors that might 
say, well, it's probably good for you to do some of this. Um, you go in the last, you know, five or 10 years and different things have gained a little bit of acceptance, a little bit more, a little bit more. A lot of what I would call the internal mind-body, you know, those sorts of things, whether it's meditation or other, you know, mindfulness work and other things in that area are you know, they're very well accepted by almost every every large major cancer center and small one. And in the bigger ones where they have more resources, they'll actually have practitioners who help people with that. You know, it's part of the, the, the work that they do. So it's been a really, that has been a very positive move, I, I would say, in the last three decades. And what you see with other parts of the, like the, the way to integrate all of us with our care it depends a little bit on the center and who they have there and who, what their expertise is, you know, cause you'll see centers where they've had a lot of people who practice acupuncture and oriental medicine and they get really good results with palliative, you know, pain and other, other things. And they use that all the time, you know, and then you'll have places where, you know, there's other type of practitioners involved. So I think it's getting more and more, one of the things I always tell people, because it's it's a little easy to kind of get into an us or them sort of feeling, but you're, whoever your doctor you're looking at today is, whether they're, say, the medical oncologist or the radiation oncologist, they have a giant job. Like, they, they have so much on their plate to give you, and they're trying to make these really super critical decisions because in the world of, you know, medical oncology or radiation oncology, you don't make much of a mistake and you have a big bad outcome. So the reason I point that out to people is that's not maybe the person who's going to know about a ton of this other stuff. And that's certainly not the time they need to devote to your care. They need to be able to connect with other providers who can help you get these other things where let's say you want to do meditation. I've never, you know, patient will say, I've never done it before, never thought about it. How do I do it? And they'll say, well, you should do meditation. And, you know, so you need resources for that. And, and people do need to give their standard providers a little bit of a break because it, they were not taught a lot about it in their training. And their job is to not have you have a really bad effect from this treatment that they're trying to do. So, so that's why these centers are nice where right down the hall, there'll be somebody who can take care of that, you know, the other what about someone that doesn't have access to a large center like that? What guidance yeah. can you give those folks to find those resources? Yeah. So, and that is one thing at the end of the book, there's a resource section and there's a pretty much any major topic that was brought up in the book where I gave the kind of the, uh, the ABCs of it and how do you, how do you get started and do it? If you want more information, there's a there's deep dives in the back one of the really, you know, there's there's good and bad with uh, modern information availability on the internet. The bad is you can get a lot of weird information, but there's a oh, yeah. lot. Yeah, <laughs> you can you can go down big rabbit holes, and and I would encourage people not to do that. But um, but you can get to um, you know, because this happens a lot. Let's say you know, like I'm in Seattle, and we have the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. We got all these resources and almost anybody can get into some part of that and have access to a lot of stuff if they really need it. But if you go to the other side of the mountains in rural Washington or in the middle of Idaho or, you know, parts of Montana, et cetera, you don't. 
the nice thing is if you can connect up now electronically with, say, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance's mindfulness program or their meditation outreach programs or whatever, you can get some really good legitimate sourced information to get you started. And you don't you don't have to weed through the million maybe sketchy things on the internet that you have to go through to get there. And then you can either, you know, you can either find on you know, there's a lot of really interesting and cool things on YouTube. Like if you're really remote and can't get to a practitioner and you want to do some mind body things, you know, do some meditation, mindfulness, et cetera, you, you can actually go through, you know, step-by-step uh, instructions with people online and do it. So what I would, nor- you know, unless you know somebody who's, you know, doing this or whatever, what I normally tell people to do is look at your like regional big cancer center, go to their website first. And usually they have resources that are pretty well vetted and that's a great place to start. It's not that the other ones aren't good. It's just, you know, you, you don't, you don't want to spend five days figuring something out. And then you can find people and resources. And like I say, in the back of the book, we, we put in um, primary resources for, for example, your your biggest hurdle is your family, <laughs> you know, or your biggest hurdle is, you know, the fact that you don't have a supportive network or your biggest hurdle is, um, you know, getting access to some mind body work. There's, there's places you can plug in there and do that. Mindfulness has become a very popular topic of late, not just in cancer, but outside of cancer for people who don't understand really what mindfulness is and how it can help those who are touched by cancer. Talk a little bit about mindfulness. Yeah, it's, you know, in, in some respects, the, what I, what I sometimes call the mindfulness movement, you know, which has become very to the forefront in the last, you know, five, 10 years, it, it appeals to different groups of people differently. So, and, and I'll, I'll just kind of, this is my opinion as sort of an observer of, you know, patients with chronic illness and cancer. There are people who in the past might be afraid of the idea of meditating, but they would look at a mindfulness practice and say, that's more comfortable for me. So in one sense, I've, I've really appreciated mindfulness and that it's really broadened the scope for people who were, you know, freaked out for whatever reason around meditation when you'd bring it up. But if you go to the core of a mindfulness practice, it's, it's doing, it's a, it's an internal practice, meaning you and you and your thoughts, you and yourself just like a meditation practice or any other personal practice, it's you centering to the point where you see the places that you want to go and you want to have, you know, come about in your life and all of that. And you also equally see the places where, you know, either you yourself or your circumstances or whatever are putting up boundaries or borders to you moving forward to where you want to go. And so the mindfulness is really about a little bit maybe being self-critical, but more just being self-aware and saying, yeah, I, I want this, but I've always believed this about me. And that's, you know, maybe held me back or, gee, I don't need to believe that anymore or whatever. Uh, or, 
you know, really there's, there's these things I think are a problem, but they, you know, they're because I'm projecting them as a problem or whatever. So it's, it's really about just getting real honest with you so that you can start from a place where, you know, and we all do that. We're all humans. We all have things that we believe about ourselves that aren't really true. And, and if we make decisions based on those erroneous thoughts, we're not going to get where we want to go. So mindfulness is a lot about that. It's also though, if you think of your, you know, your autonomic nervous system that controls your automatic activities in your body. So your heart rate and your breathing and, you know, uh, your uh, fight or flight and all of that. When you are being mindful, part of it is getting to a quiet place so you can hear and see these things that may be barriers or whatever. It resets your autonomic nervous system so you're no longer completely running in, say, fight or flight or um, fear, etc. Which, I mean, if you think about getting a cancer diagnosis or getting new treatments that are scary, that puts you into fight or flight and it doesn't, it, it, it muddies all of your decision-making process. So mindfulness is just a way to get to the real you and to work on that. Now, a lot of people may not like all the stuff that they see when they're being mindful, you know, cause we all have things that we might need to work on. But the point is we all do. And, and it's, you take them one at a time. And it's the only way really to move forward. I think. Have you found that chemotherapy has caused frequent trips to the restroom, which has left you either in pain or itching or irritated? I know that it's happened to me uh, through my numerous chemotherapy treatments, and I really was at my wit's end. I tried some wipes and didn't really like how that made me feel. And then I came upon Lux Bidet, and Lux is spelled L-U-X-E. And it took me all of, I don't know, about 15 minutes to attach this thing to the toilet seat. And once I did, with a turn of a knob, I was able to rinse myself off with a cool jet of water. And it felt so much more comfortable and really relieved a lot of the pain and the itching you know, from all of the wiping. I encourage you to check out Lux Bidet by visiting wehavecancershow.com forward slash Lux. Again, that's L-U-X-E to check out their line of bidets. And I know that if you suffer from these side effects, picking up one of these will really make a drastic difference in how you feel. True transparency. Uh, first off, I would never promote a product that I myself don't use and don't enjoy. So you you know that that's the case here. And if you make a purchase, uh, a small contribution does go to the We Have Cancer Show to help offset some of our costs. However, that that incentive is not passed on to you in any way. It just helps us uh, here at the WeHaveCancerShow.com. I know. You'll enjoy it. Check it out again at wehavecancershow.com forward slash L-U-X-E. The place that I, from from where I sit, see this whole fight or flight piece surface the most is the term that cancer patients know all too well, scanxiety. I've got a scan yeah. coming up and I'm already freaking out three weeks before and I'm stressed and I'm anxiety and I'm panic attack and all these things. 
about this scan that's coming up at some point down the road, whether it's tomorrow, next week, three weeks from now. Can you give us some a tool or a piece of advice for the for our listeners who say, "Oh my God, I go through scanxiety every three months. I have a scan." Can you give us something concrete that folks can do to kind of quell that a little bit? Yeah, that that's that's got to be one of the I think probably one of the worst things for people to go through. And you see, it was yeah scans tumor marker check-ins if you're following tumor markers, the other lab things. And one thing I will say, because I've I've had probably more face-to-face conversations about that than almost any other thing outside of their cancer, is it you have to acknowledge that that's normal for 99% of people, if not more. There is no way around feeling like that because you have this totally other thing, which is your cancer diagnosis, and your brain connects the scan or the markers or whatever you're following or all of the above with, am I winning or losing here? And so your brain in parts, I mean, you can even totally not not think about your scans in between them, but in parts of your brain that are not thinking or not you know consciously thinking, there is a rumination about your cancer and then whatever tells me I'm winning or losing. And that's usually the scans or the markers, et cetera. And the, the ruminant parts of your brain are connected to the, uh, to the real core base parts of your brain that trigger fight or flight, et cetera. So we would literally have people, as you well know, who would stop sleeping and would, you know, develop whatever, you know, every other symptom because their autonomic nervous system is just, we got to know, we got to know, we got to know. So knowing that it's normal, knowing it's, it's like, this is, it's, it's not some magical thing that happens. This is actually your brain wanting to take care of you in one kind of interesting way. Honestly, in, in all of the people I talk to, you can tell people preemptively, okay, this is going to happen. I don't want you to go down that rabbit hole, but they're going to still go down the rabbit hole. Like that's, you know, you can tell them all you want. Don't worry about this. They're going to worry about it because it's their body and their life. What I would normally have people do after usually the first go around and they see how much it affects them. You know, they get their first interval follow-up, whether it's a scan or labs or whatever. I would say, okay, so you see how that affected you, see how long it affected, and everyone's a little bit different. Some people are really good at ignoring till like the day before, and then they freak out. Other people are planners, and it's a month, and they're 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 count. It's a countdown to wins. You know, wins the scan. How's it going to go? I'm good till I'm sitting in the uh, in the exam room waiting for the doctor to open the door. So I can yeah. hold out about so that it's, long. It's, <laughs> It's that's pretty good, actually. Uh, but yeah, you know, you got the I, you know, we have people that bring in, they've got an Excel spreadsheet with every marker, and you know, those people sometimes a little tougher sell. But basically, you know, the the first thing that that I learned kind of the the rough way with patients was, you you can't tell them to not it have it not be a an issue and have it not be an issue. So the next thing would be, okay, you see how this was last time. And we, we both agree it's important, but you can't let this ruin your life because on the other side of it, if you look at it, you know, logically, the scan is going to be how it's going to be. You being upset about the scan will not change the scan. 
<laughs> you know, I promise you, you being upset about it now, that, that doesn't make that easy. But once they see that, then they'll say, okay, so what do I do about it? Well, then that actually dials back to, uh, and this sometimes is a good motivator for, you know, the, the kind of the integrated personal growth side of things they were trying to work on. If they were doing a mindfulness practice, where are you at with that? Because that can actually help to ground you and help you with, you know, not letting your autonomic nervous system go crazy. If they're doing meditation practice or meditation and prayer, like some people do or whatever, um, you know, that's the time to like get to that base level because it truly is this, this core protect your own self nervous system response that puts you into scan anxiety, lab anxiety, etc. And the only way to control, not really control that, but to calm that down and objectify it so you know what's going on is to reach those deeper parts of your function. And things like meditative practice or mindfulness or any of its other iterations are really the best way to get there, you know. And, and the, the opposite is, and you've probably seen this, we would have people come in and, you know, the other provider would see them and how anxious they were. And then they'd be put on so many meds that they were sort of medically unplugged for the time. And that's, you know, if you, if that keeps you from losing your mind, that's great. But that doesn't fix the problem. Like that just unplugs you, you know, chemically and, um, in long term, that's not a great strategy. So really going back first is acknowledging how much it affects you. Next is realizing that it works me up. I know that, but how worked up I get has no effect on how the scan or the lab is going to come out. So what can I do about that? Well, the what can you do really goes back to those core sort of practices that, that center you. And the thing is, every day is a new day and every day, the anxiety, you know, can come back full force. So it's not like you do it once and you're good to go. It's like every day, you know, you look at the dragon and deal with it and calm it down. And then the next day you do it again. It does, you know, for people who do that, it, my experience has been, it gets easier. It doesn't make it better. It doesn't make it less of a, an event, but it makes their experience of it better. Yeah. Well, if I could just share you know, my personal story for our listeners who may have heard what you just said, Dr. Anderson, and may still be skeptical. I found myself get, got totally worked up and uh, it wasn't sleeping. And I just stopped and I said, what are you doing? To your point, I was like, the scan's going to be the result. All I'm doing is ruining the days leading up to it where I could enjoy my right. time with my wife, our grandkids, doing something together because it's a choice at the end of the day. It's a choice. Am I going to ruin the days leading up to the scan? That's not going to change the result anyway, or am I going to do what I can to say, you know, today's going to be a great day and I'm going to enjoy this or I'm going to enjoy that. Do you know, would it still, would it still be in the back of my mind? And said, hmm, you know, but control the dragon. So to use your term where I, mm -hmm. I would think of it, but I didn't worry about it. I was like, hmm, got the scan coming mm -hmm. up. Hope everything's going to be okay. And that was a major transformation to me. And I would tell you to this day, I think that I'm pretty much there. You, following the advice that you just gave, 
Now, again, I haven't figured out how to conquer sitting on the on the white piece of paper on uh, you know on the bench waiting for the doctor to open the door. Uh, if anybody has figured out how to conquer that one, please let us know. <laughs> but if I could, mm-hmm. if I could get that far, I think I've done pretty good. So, folks, it works. Yeah. It does work. It really does. Yeah, I, I, I don't I don't think there's any way around the the moment of truth you know <laughs> discussion but i don't think you'd be human if that was yeah my do- my oncologist likes to walk in and go so how are you and i'm like that's going to depend on the next words coming out of your mouth yeah. so let's get right to it come on you know walk in with the pleasantry how i am is waiting <laughs> and, and he's and he's learned you know and he walks in and now he says well your scans look good i'm like thank you now we can continue the conversation <laughs> you know yeah yeah well i i think on you know on his side of the ledger it's probably also he probably has a significant portion of people that need to soften the blow a little bit and he you need a little bit of (laughs) but yeah i i I think you know yeah i I think a lot of people are like you and uh, would prefer the news and then we'll talk (laughs) right right Yeah. Well, th- this has been a great conversation, Dr. Anderson. I appreciate the generosity of your time. Again, folks, you know, th- there's some great information out there. Dr. Anderson actually has two books out there, Outside the Box Cancer Therapies and his latest book, Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment. Uh, you can find them wherever you uh, get your books. And you can also find more information on the work Dr. Anderson does on at his website consult dranderson.com and i appreciate again the generosity of your time and i know that there's at least one person out there that's going to benefit from the uh from what you shared and for that i'm truly grateful thank you so much thank you it's been some time since we've talked about the Colon Cancer Coalition's uh, events to raise funds for all the great work they do. And they have two events coming up that I'd like to share with you. Coming up on Saturday, March 6th in Beachwood, North Carolina at the Beach Mountain Ski Resort is their Runs for Buns event. So we've talked about uh, Tour de Tush bike races and get your rear and gear run walk events. This is a ski event, and all proceeds go towards the Colon Cancer Coalition. Also on Sunday, March 21st, is a Get Your Rear and Gear event at McAlpin Park in Charlotte, North Carolina. It'll be a time 5K run as well as a, a fun run and walk event. For information on these and all other Colon Cancer Coalition events, Visit their website at coloncancercoalition.org. Thank you for listening to We Have Cancer, and thank you to our sponsor, the Colon Cancer Coalition, for your support. You can subscribe to We Have Cancer by visiting Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, or Spotify. And you can find us on social media by visiting our Facebook page at We Have Cancer Show and at We Have Cancer Pod on both Instagram and Twitter. We Have Cancer is a proud supporter of Genie's Blue Angels, providing financial support to those affected by colorectal cancer.